Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another interview for Technology Uncorked. My name is Jeff Quattromani, and this show is brought to you by Sonos. Now, I have been talking about the Sonos Roam for weeks, but what's been really nice is I'm starting to venture out into the wilderness, see people again, talk to people again, is I'm starting to hear a little bit more about their latest product, the Roam. Now, while I talk about it a lot, it's fascinating to me that as I was literally in conversation, I didn't bring up Sonos and somebody said to me, hey, guess what I just bought? I bought the new Sonos Roam. I also got a DM from somebody who does listen to the show, Jonathan, and he sent me a thing saying it's finally arrived and he's received his Sonos Roam as well. What was interesting with the conversation I had in the morning with with the gentleman face to face was... Okay, so I mean, what what was the reason you bought it? And a lot of it comes down to, well, I want something that I can take with me when I barbecue, take to the park, take to the beach. Uh, This person lives on the northern beaches, so I could see the appeal for them, that they could really take it out with them on their weekends. But for me, I've been thinking more and more about this because Sonos sell the Sonos Roam at 279 Australian dollars. They sell the Sonos One, 299 Australian dollars. And here's me thinking about what I would put in the bedroom. And I think this has to be a real debate that people will be having. If you're looking at putting a Sonos speaker in a bedroom, would it be the Roam that, yes, it has the voice assistant built in, it has airplay built in, um, and it has excellent sound, but it's portable? Or do you want something that has a little bit extra oomph in the Sonos One, does not need to be battery powered, does not need to be wirelessly charged or anything like that, but is not portable? for extra money. It's an interesting debate and something that, you know, as I'm talking to more and more people about the new Sonos Roam, I genuinely think it has become that perfect speaker that you leave in the kid's bedroom and you take it with you when you want to go on picnics. At 279 bucks, it is dead set what I think one of the products of the year. And I'm not saying that because we're sponsored by them. I'm saying that because that's what I genuinely think. Anyway, have a look at them. Head to Sonos.com and have a look at the full range. You'll find something for every room of the house. That's what I do. I have one in the kitchen. I have one in the lounge room. I have one in every room of the house, not the bathroom, uh, but every other room and not the laundry yet. I think the laundry would be a good spot to have one, to be honest, because I just think that if you're going to be doing the washing, which is pretty mundane and boring, why not listen to good music at the same time? Anyway, that's that's something I'll think about another day. In the meantime, we have a really special guest today. Andrew Slavkovic. He is the Solutions Engineering Manager at CyberArk Australia New Zealand. Now, what are we going to be talking about? Well, it's cybersecurity, guys. And look, I know that I've been talking about cybersecurity in a course that I've recently been doing and learning a heck of a lot more about what goes on um, behind the scenes. But here is a gentleman who knows the ins and outs of cybersecurity, knows about the threats that are out there, knows about the common mistakes that we're all making. And look, Even I'm guilty of making some of these mistakes as well. So no one is an expert. That's why we have to keep having these conversations to continually learn more because this is our only way of defending against the bad guys. There are so many people out there who do want to hack into our systems, who are looking to make a buck, and all that we can do is fight them with knowledge. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Slavkovic from CyberArk. Now, Andrew, as a man who works in cybersecurity, what is the biggest thing that keeps you up at night? I think the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is the changing land, the changing threat landscape that we're going through at the moment. Obviously, with the COVID pandemic, it's caused us all to work remotely. And as we've gone, all gone home, so have the hackers. So to me, it's probably the evolving threat landscape. 
That's a really interesting point, actually, because I was I was also going to ask that you know when the when the pandemic kicked in, you know, we all went home to remote work, remote learn, whatever it was, um, and a lot of us needed to call out in our organisations that people were taking selfies, and and that was fun that everyone was saying, "Here's my new work environment," having a selfie with their you know new setup. But one of the problems that I saw was that they were usually and probably unintentionally also showing the world what was on their screen. And it was it could have been confidential information or it could have been things that otherwise would not, not normally be shared uh, to the public. What kind of risks did, did organizations open themselves up to when they were, you know, realistically on real short notice, sending everybody to work from home? Yeah, I think that's an important one. I mean, us as being an identity security company, we often preach about um, password, like writing your password down, how it's a bad practice. And mm. a lot of these selfies that we actually use in our presentations are around uh, people posting stuff online with the Wi-Fi password in the background. So <laughs> I think organizations do really need to take this serious. And I think it comes down to user education and awareness training. There is There has got to be a lot of that. And, and it's been interesting to me as we've gone through this pandemic that you know, obviously the whole COVID stuff is one thing, but when we think about from a cybersecurity point of view, no one was really prepared for this dramatic change. And especially a lot of employees who had never worked from home before, there was no playbook as to what they needed to do when they got home, how they would actually make sure they were set up in a safe environment. Um, and, and even when you start bringing work equipment home, you know, laptops that can connect to corporate VPNs and things like that, when that's maybe perhaps given to the children because they need to do their schoolwork on it or they want to play or whatever it is because, heck, I mean, all, all these kids were home and they were certainly getting in the hair of parents. That's another problem in itself. And were you seeing trends like this where companies were potentially exposing themselves because, you know, you know all good intentions, but things do happen? Yeah. So I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. You go home, uh, you, your child wants to use your laptop or vice versa. Uh, you're short of devices. And really, the, the notion of an enterprise laptop is kind of slowly disappearing. So mm. we're enabling the, the digital workforce more and more now that you can grab any device, uh, you jump online through the VPN, and, and, and you're away doing, doing work. So to me, I think that the bigger risk here is how do you actually secure that device while seamlessly not interrupting with the user experience, which is a is real challenge. And you've also got the user experience element too, because it needs to still be somewhat easy, somewhat not taking up too much time, but still putting in the same security needs that you're actually talking about there as well. Were, were there any examples where you know, you've had to see changes over the last 18 months that you've had to implement? Yeah, I think for, from our perspective, we always talk about when the remote users go home, um, how do you still enable them to do their work? For example, Print. like printing is a, a good use case where they would normally connect to the, the work printer and print, but we have to still enable that functionality from a home perspective. So we'd always talk about the concept of application control on a device. So having a clear policy that's in line with your organization as you go home, which will still allow that flexibility, but at the same time, provide the organization the assurance that the endpoint is doing the right thing. Good point. Good point. And, and you know, the, the workplace that I'm in at the moment uh, for my for my day job, we didn't have you know restrictions on in, on using our USB ports, for example. But I know some companies would have had that in place where you're not allowed to plug in a flash drive or anything like that to your machines. And then when they were probably all sent home, 
they found problems where, hang on, now I can't connect my personal printer or I can't do some of the things that are going to make me efficient. So that's almost unsurprising that, um, you know, if you had too much security, it might've been too hard to adjust to working from home. But again, you don't want to leave yourself completely wide open. Yeah. And think about the speed of which we went home. There was no, I think you mentioned before, there's no playbook on this and mm-hmm. same for the IT guys, everyone's gone home and all of a sudden you've got thousands of users making these requests on IT to do X or do Y. So what we've seen is the bigger default is just to allow all. And that way you're really not dealing with this multitude of unhappy people, uh, perhaps complaining that they can't print or can't do something. That's it's scary. It's absolutely scary. And I think for IT teams in organizations it must have just been such a daunting moment when suddenly employees that you could have gone to their desk to help them with if that was the support model that they had you were now just hoping that they were doing the right thing um, at home on their own private network and andrew one of the one of the things that i wanted to always ask somebody like yourself who works in works in cybersecurity is when you watch the news and you're hearing about a new breach that has happened on a company or something like that are you one of those people that always wants to dig in to see what's, what's actually happened or what problem it is that they've gone through? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to us, that's, it's always a fascinating topic. And here at CyberArk Australia, we always kind of dissect those, those breaches and not as an exercise to, to throw stones or, or ambulance chase per se, but just to better understand what new techniques and tips the attackers are using and how, in theory, a capability or a solution could plug in and, and prevent that from happening. And I think even during COVID, um, ransomware attack was one that was becoming a lot more prevalent. You've got malicious actors from different countries trying to maybe find out what's going on with the vaccine, who's got the formula. Mm-hmm. And so something like healthcare is becoming a, a, a large target for ransomware attacks. So that's one that we keep a close eye on. Yeah, it's a really good point too. And one of the most recent ones I was I was thinking about as I was asking you that question was was the um, Nine Network. So Channel Nine in Australia, um, they essentially were brought to their knees. They have a Sydney office that was all new and all tech driven, even the cameras on the floor and things like that. And they literally were unable to even live broadcast from that building uh, because of the attack that they were under. So we're talking about the news bulletins, the morning shows, all those things which are live all had to be moved to another um, studio because that was where they had old school equipment, which actually could allow them to do so. And it was interesting that as I started to sort of look into the communication that staff were being um, told from their IT teams, if I kind of reverse engineered those messages that they were sending out to staff on things to be aware of or things to check, it sounded like it was um, Medusa Locker because just me Googling, this is not me trying to be smart. Um, It sounded like it was Medusa Locker just running rampant through the organization. And obviously it was all uh, ransomware. Mm -hmm. Have you looked into what happened with Channel 9 as well? Uh, We haven't looked in specifically into that particular breach, but what we do know about ransomware and uh, CyberArk um, as a cybersecurity vendor actually protects against attacks like ransomware because the combination of uh, operating in a least privileged model and also controlling applications when and how they install within your enterprise is a powerful combination to prevent things like that from occurring. So if the application doesn't have the permissions to install, you're essentially locking it out to lock the endpoint and and kind of be a target for that ransomware attack. It's a good point. It's a good point. And as, as we do think about ransomware, the key message that we always hear is don't pay. You know, if you're under attack, whether it's your organization or your personal computer and 
you've got a ransomware message on your screen. Um, the message that we always get told from cybersecurity firms and others is just do not pay. But for a lot of people, I'm sure they do pay. And that's why hackers are obviously still in business. That's why ransomware even exists in the first place. What should people actually be doing? Because sometimes not paying means that they just sit there waiting for something to happen, that they don't know what the actual right step is beyond not paying. Yeah, so I guess every individual or every organisation will have their own policy and obviously we encourage them to, to follow that policy. I guess one of the biggest steps is just isolating the problem. So if you know, for example, a home user or a, a small organisation has an endpoint that has encrypted and you've got that blue screen and it says here are the payment terms, my advice is to really pull the pin, disconnect it from the network, isolate it, and that way you can at least take it to a professional who can forensically look at the device or help you to uh, recover from it. And that's why backups are so important as well. So you can restore yourself to a known good state. So effectively, that's that's almost the answer, isn't it? That, you know, you've, you've been compromised. That's not great. But hopefully, you know, you've got a very recent backup of the files and the things that are important to you on that were on that computer so that you can call it quits on that machine, wipe it if you have to, or, or restore back to a certain point and, and then restore from a backup. Yeah, exactly right. And the good thing, the good thing here is that it's, it's facilitating a conversation. So all these attacks, even though they're bad, it gives us an opportunity to really sit back and investigate or diagnose why that happened. And hmm. I think with the collective knowledge that's coming out of these kind of attacks, it's hopefully going to build more robust security controls and hopefully five to 10 years from now, ransomware will just be a thing of the past. You would hope, you would hope. I mean, if, if the money starts disappearing, that's effectively um, what would happen. I'd just be curious to see what they go to next, I guess, would be, the, uh, would be probably the only concern, if anything. But uh, now, now, Andrew, Australians inherently, I guess we're early adopters when it comes to you know, picking up the latest smartphone or smart speakers. Uh, Wi-Fi-based security cameras seem to be a hot seller in, in most retail stores in Australia other internet of things devices, they're flying off shelves. And especially during COVID, I think people had more time to you know, spruce up their home and have the right gadgets that they wanted to around them. But what are some of the concerns that you see in this internet of things space as we're all connecting every device that we can think of to Wi-Fi? Yeah, it's, that's a really good point. So like you, when I went home, the first thing I did was invest in my Sonos, invest in my Nest, hmm. um, out of anything just because of boredom and this, this more time that I had on my hands. But I think... You really do need to question, hey, does my fridge really need access to the internet? So my first tip would be really rationalizing what it is that you're providing access to. And what's the trade-off here? If you don't want your fridge to have access, obviously it defeats the purpose, but doesn't need it for how you're intending to use it as well. And also um, I have Nest at home. And, and one of the things that is important is having that multi-factor authentication on the actual application that way if for whatever reason it falls into the wrong hands someone can't um, get camera access over my entire property and see when i'm not home and maybe come and and rob my place so yeah. i think mfa is becoming a really important concept that's underutilized at the moment that we really need to start introducing more and more on the front end of those applications I think that's a really important point because, I mean, I, I recently discovered um, Shodan, the, the, the website where you can essentially search for poorly protected devices that are connected to the internet yep. and effectively log into them. It was something I found myself logged into a CCTV um, system in a restaurant in Malaysia. 
And I don't know what kind of restaurant it was. I was trying to pay attention to one of the cameras in the kitchen. Couldn't quite work out what it was. There was some noodles involved for sure. But, you know, it was clear to me that, you know, we might be highly focused on our Wi-Fi passwords. People love to make sure they've got a good Wi-Fi password in place. They might have a password to log onto their computer, but we're completely careless about default usernames and passwords for the things that we have in our homes as well. I think most people set up their baby monitors or their security cameras once and then after that they don't touch that stuff and they maybe leave that default password there as well is that is that happening a lot yeah yeah absolutely the i think to your first point i think that's viewing those open network connections at restaurant that you mentioned it would be perfect uh thing when we all went home for covid maybe sitting there watching a restaurant might be something quite entertaining but in all seriousness the changing the default username and password nist has recently even provided advice and guidance to say, look, even increasing the number of characters in a password doesn't provide any additional level of assurance that we really need to go to those past phrases. We really need to make sure the default username and password are obviously changed. Um, and also simple things like uh, your Wi-Fi at home, when they give you that fridge magnet, maybe contemplate not putting it on the fridge in case you have a, a shared house that people can come in and out of. It's a really good point too, actually. And, and it's that, seeing that website was surprising for me. I, I didn't know about it until very recently. And, you know, when I realized that there are services that can scan the internet for devices that are potentially, you know, vulnerable and hackers could be using that tool for cyber attacks or um, whether it's on individuals or large, larger scale organizations, what is, what is being done on the other side? I mean, how do, we, how do we compete with this given that humans alone can't really keep up with the bad guys? Yeah, it's, that's a, it's a good question. I, I think it's just continuous, like the awareness of you going to that side and, and knowing about it. And I guess another example is GitHub. I mean, um, until recently, there was the ability to go and scan those repos for people that may have accidentally uploaded credentials in those and now organizations when the the light is shone on them they provide tools and free services where they actually notify the organization that hey in your github repository you've actually stored credentials in there that are plain text that could potentially give you access to a cloud environment as well so i think just that the fact that we're talking about it um yeah it creates that yeah and i think i think that is important does it also in some ways change what kind of buying advice we should be giving when it comes to Internet of Things products. Because if we take security cameras again as the example, you can go to some stores and you can get them bargain prices, like super cheap stuff. Yes, it's a Wi-Fi camera. It does what it says on the box, but maybe the security behind it is not something people pay attention to when you've got other brands that maybe have multi-factor authentication and others. Is this something that people should be more conscious of instead of just getting the best deal and actually making sure it's the most secure option at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. You've got to have some kind of assurance that the product you're buying doesn't contain a backdoor or, I don't know, that it that meets some kind of standards. Um, so my advice isn't to buy necessarily the cheaper product, but do your due diligence around the vendor reputation. How seriously do they take security um, and, and invest that back into their product with things like the ability to, to incorporate two-factor or multi-factor authentication, how, how secure is their code that they, they code to or the practices and principles around that as well. So they're all factors that I would personally look into if I'm 
investing heavily into this internet of things. Mm -hmm. I think it's a risk uh, benefit uh, uh, kind of way up as well. I mean, what is the benefit you're getting and what risk do you, are you taking on by having this in your house? It's a really good point. I, I, and it's probably something people should be thinking about more because the convenience element is fantastic sometimes or just saying, oh, this is amazing. It's internet connected, but yep. hang on, what do you need it to be internet connected for? I think that's, um, that's also really important. And also understanding how it connects to the internet is, is a big point. So just if you're going to invest in it, take some time to provide that maybe separate segregation on your Wi-Fi network so you're not potentially um, compromising your whole, whole home environment if uh, the inevitable or the, the, the smart device gets compromised, you're kind of limiting the attacker to that segment. That's an interesting point, actually. That makes a lot of sense because, you know, in my view, I've, I'm still, I've still got this security camera in my head that's, using, that's being used to watch what we're doing. But, you know, to your point, if someone has access to one device, it could also mean that they start to use that to access other devices on the network. And if you separate your, your networks out, then you potentially don't have that problem. Yeah, because how, how the hacker, like a hacker will always operate in the same uh, standard fundamental way and they'll always look to move laterally. So if you're, if your Internet of Things smart device is set up as, as part of your home device, it's essentially an extension of your perimeter. And, and what they'll do is fall on an endpoint. They'll look to move laterally, not because they want to maybe see your house or maybe see what's inside, but they want to get to something more juicy. So they'll move more laterally till they get something of value. And then they may find credentials, exfiltrate data, whatever their target is, really. I like that. I like that. It's a really good tip. And, and I've also looked at uh, password managers because, you know, as, as you mentioned, m moving away from passwords and start using passphrases, yep. I think it's a really smart idea. And the problem here, I guess, is that when you've got, say, 50 accounts uh, you yep. know, spread across the internet, it can be really hard to remember them. And that's why we do have this growing trend of having a password manager. When I look at them, I, I, I love the convenience of it, but again, I feel like it's almost a honeypot for all of my accounts. I feel like I'm giving this one service everything, literally yep. the, the, the keys to my life. Is that, is that a concern? Have we ever seen password managers get hacked into where, again, all your user data is then exposed? Um, look, I'm not, I'm not aware of anyone that has been hacked into using a password safe, but I think if the concerns are, are valid that you're essentially putting the keys to all your kingdom in the one repository. So that's why a product like the one that we sell, we essentially advocate putting the credentials in a shared, secured, stored vault, but having controls around, uh, let's say that password safe to ensure that it's very difficult to compromise that because you still want to give the convenience of having that password and mm -hmm. storing them all, but you want some assurance that there's controls in place protected such as mfa on the interface so so tell me a bit more about about the product that, that we're talking about here because this is this is potentially an, an alternative to those traditional password managers that we see so yeah cyberarch is really pitched at the enterprise level so we provide the capability to centralize the storage of those credentials mm. and provide a secure digital hardened vault to provide the assurance to our customers that um, even though you're storing all these credentials within uh, a password safe, but it's very difficult to compromise that location by having all these compensatory controls around the outside. I really like that. And is, is there any vision, do you think, for this to go to a consumer level at some point? 
Uh, look, I'm not sure. I'm not in the product management <laughs> space, but it it has it has application at the uh, consumer base, but not uh, probably in right now for the home user. Okay, okay, it would be a, something to watch this space on potentially. And Andrew, if there's if there's one thing that you wish you could never need to explain to somebody again, what would it be? Um, probably, probably the concept of uh, changing the default username and password for any device or anything. I mean, uh, we, what we say at CyberArch, a user doesn't need to, to hack in, they just log in. So making it difficult uh, by changing those default credentials is something um, I would have hoped by now everyone kind of had a good understanding of. Yeah, and look, it's, um, it, it was eye-opening for me to realize just how easy it is yeah. Uh, for people to to access your unsecured devices, and the, and honestly, the worst part to it is that when I go on onto that website and I see an IP address and it says it's a security surveillance system or something, I click on it. Almost the worst part about the login pages for these Internet of Things products is that it tells you the brand and yep. the make of the product. So I then type that into Google along with default username and password. I have that result within five seconds, and then the next minute I'm logged in because uh, I've got everything available to me. It was too easy. Yep, and no hacking required. I didn't. I, I didn't feel like a hacker. I wasn't <laughs> even wearing a hoodie. It was very. I was very boring. <laughs> now, Andrew, the, uh, the the rest of the questions that I've got is is stuff that we ask everybody who comes on the show, and you know, there's no right or wrong answers. Um, or maybe there is a wrong answer if it's <laughs> terrible, but I'll let you know. I'm sure you'll be. You won't be the first. I, I'm I'm, prom- I'm hopeful. Right. Now, Andrew, what would be your favorite app to keep you organized? Um, my favorite app to keep me organized, that is a good point. At the moment, it's probably something like Whoop. Mm. So that's my uh, smart, phone, uh, smart device that I use to monitor aspects such as my sleep, uh, my exercise, uh, my diet. I haven't, I haven't used the Whoop band yet. That's, that's like really new to Australia, right? Uh, I've, I've had it for about a year and a half. It's very kind of um, popular in the US. I don't think yeah. it's made its way that much down here. But the really, for me, the benefit of it is the, the, the fusing of the data around recovery or strain and the flexibility of inputting those dimensions into it manually around certain factors that you did during the day that may or may not increase performance or increase sleep. And, and I think that's one of the advantages of Whoop. I know I'm off course already, but um, one of the advantages of Whoop is it focuses more on recovery rather than just counting 10,000 steps per day. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, it's a bit of a mindset as well to, to when you get a red or a, a bad recovery just to kind of push through. But it is so many factors that go into measuring that that I find that it's so accurate, even with regarding sleep, um, it can really accurately determine how many uh, disturbances you had during the night, um, the quality of REM and deep sleep and, and awake sleep. And it, I really do feel like it matches well to day strain, which is the indicator of how much exercise you've done during the day. Interesting. Yeah. I need, I need to get one to try it. It's um, yeah. I don't know why they have taken so long to bring it to Australia. It's getting, it's getting frustrating because every other podcast that I listen to, they're advertising whoop and it's like, I can't get it yet. But anyway, um, Andrew, what would... life, I highly recommend it. I will. I will. I will. Andrew, what would be your favorite social media app? Um, I'm actually not on social media. So at the moment, it's probably um, something like LinkedIn or 
yeah. or signal. So that's so that's interesting. Is it is it, is that is that primarily because of the security risks that are that do exist with social media, or you just don't have time for seeing people's crap on Twitter? No, it's probably a bit of A and B. Yeah. Uh, I think growing up in kind of a a classified work environment space, I learned very early on the risks of social media and um, people oversharing information and just the fact that the attribution or chaining together certain elements of that information can really give someone uh, a complete picture of your life. It's a really good point. It's one of the things I get nervous about at the start of the year when kids, are, uh, parents are sending their kids to school. And yep. more often than not, I'll see a photo of the kid, the kid's name, um, the emblem on their, on their shirt or their uniform that tells them what school they're going to. And I know the parent's name and I'm thinking, wow, like someone could be ringing the school saying that they are the parent, yep. they know the kid's name and they could have a real conversation about picking them up from school or taking them out of school early or whatever the case may be. And yep. it just scares me when people do that. Yep. Uh, and that, and also when you're on holiday, a perfect opportunity to say, Hey, I'm not at home. Uh, my it. house is vacant. That's a big one. That's a, that's a real big one. I, I remember people telling me that what they do is they like to wait till after they've come back from holidays before yeah. they share holiday photos on social media because it's that, it's that risk factor. Yep, it's smart. And also, I think with social media now, you've really got to be cognizant of the terms and condition when you download those applications because if you read the fine print of some of them, they're, they're advocating that you can turn the microphone on, turn the camera on and, and actually share that data with third parties. It is, it is a risk. It is a risk. And look, it's not one of my next questions, but based on what you're saying, do you use smart speakers in the home or are you, or are you sort of worried yeah. about the risks around those you know, microphones in the home as well? Yeah, exactly. It's a great point. I, I do use Nest at home. Um, yeah, and I, I, I guess you're 100% right there. I really haven't thought about that, that as a risk. Mm. It's an interesting one. I mean, I know they've got sort of hardware switches that you can literally disable the hardware of the microphone on them and and things like that, but it's it's got to be a concern because I've had moments where I've been having a conversation with people in the house, and the speaker chimes in, thinking that I've you know said said the awake word, and it's been listening for a minute to try and figure out what the heck's going on, and it just says, "Hmm, I don't know that," and it's like, when when were you listening? You know, it's it's one of those weird things. Yeah, I'm seeing a whole new industry potentially opening up here with the the securing of of that exact problem. So I think it's something that we're going to have to to tackle as we become more interconnected in the future. Agreed. Agreed. And um, Andrew, when you do get five minutes to spare between meetings, what's the first thing that you usually do on your phone? First thing I normally do, well, I, I try not to be on my phone is probably the, the main thing. I'm, I'm on my phone so much for work and I yep. find that um, switching off or, or trying to take a moment to be a bit more mindful is, is something that I'm trying to target this year. I think that's super important. Something I really tried to pay attention through um, through COVID as well was putting that thing down because it was um, a massive problem. And then I guess based on that, Andrew, do you wear a smartwatch or a traditional timepiece? Um, still just the Whoop, no timepiece for me. So, so the Whoop doesn't tell the time though, does it? It's just a band. Just the band. Uh, it's and yeah, the charger goes on top, slides over the top of it. Yeah, mm. very simple device, but very powerful. So you tell the time by just looking at your phone or something. Yep, that's right. Wow. Awesome. We, have, we have we have progressed so far as a in, <laughs> over time the watches are gone it's like we went to smart watches and then now i'm talking to more and more people who won't even wear a smart watch because they just don't want one they just tell yeah. the time on their phone yeah. and look when we yeah when we used to jump on airplanes and fly around the place would you use the in-flight entertainment system or would you bring your own tablet 
I would do the in-flight entertainment system. Yeah, good choice, I think. And uh, what do you love to do to disconnect? How do you get away from technology, especially cybersecurity? How do you get your head out of that and, uh, and smell the roses? Yeah, I think it's just disconnecting from, from all my devices and, and, being, and being offline, essentially. I think I definitely recharge by being out in nature. Mm. Uh, so yeah, any time that I can spend outside, I think is, is good for me. Do you, have a, do you have a particular hobby or something that you usually gravitate towards? No, look, I'm big on sport. Uh, I used to play soccer. So that was something that definitely uh, still resonates with me. And it's definitely a release for me. Nice. Nice. And look, the, this show is called Technology Uncorked. Yep. We have two episodes that we do uh, every week. We do the interview episodes and then we have a news and reviews uh, show as well. And during that episode, I'm normally opening a bottle of wine or sipping on something. I mean, you and I aren't together and heck, it's a Friday afternoon. Uh, what would be your normal go-to drink if you were just sitting down for a conversation? Yeah, I think at the moment it's gone, it's gravitating towards vodka. So uh, Zabrovka is my drink of choice at the moment. And, mm. and the backstory on that is that the bottle comes with a blade of uh, bison grass in it. So it's a bit of a marketing gimmick, but yeah. Polish vodka, one that I find I can drink straight so I don't need to have a mixer and uh, yeah, quick and easy. You drink it straight. That is just a man's man who can manage to do that. I've tried it. And I remember a company, I forget what brand the bottle was. This was a number of years ago. They sent me a bottle of vodka and they said, just stick it in the fridge or freezer, make it super, super cold. Yep. And you should be able to drink this straight. I tried. It was very hard. Very, very hard. I felt very weak and soft yeah. after that. Jeff, and it's, it's an acquired taste and one that uh, takes a lot of practice. So I think I've, I've finally achieved that. <laughs> <laughs> well, kudos to you. And Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I've, I've learned a bunch. And, you know, I think more and more this cybersecurity type conversation, it just needs to continue happening because, you know, as I've started to discover more and more things about it, and then I actually speak to an expert like yourself, we uncover even more layers. So this, um, I think the education piece is the important defense that we can put up against all these um, attackers that are out there and we just have to keep going. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's been a pleasure to be on your show as well. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. Bye-bye.